Thank you. That was wonderful. Okay, here's what we know. We know that um, the meanings of words always change over time. What, what used to mean something in the past does not necessarily ensure that it's going to mean that today. And I'm going to give you some examples. The word cloud. All right, we know what this is, right? A cloud is this misty thing in the mountains filled with these massive particles of condensed vapor. And I've heard that every once in a while it brings rain. Now, we have not personally seen this in a while, but I hear it does that. But now, but now let me tell you, cloud is not cloud. Cloud is this, this place in the internet where you go and it allows you to process things and stores your data and, and you could get programs from that. And so it's just changed. Cloud has changed. Or, or how about this one? Catfish. All right. Now, we all know what a catfish is. It is this really, really ugly fish that if we slap a lot of batter on it and drop it in a, a, a fryer, it tastes really good. Amen to that? All right. But I got to let you know, catfish is really not catfish anymore. Catfish is actually some person online who builds up a fraudulent type of persona for really, really bad reasons. They want to take your money. They want to deceive you. Uh, let me illustrate it this way. This person could have online a persona or person look like this, but in reality, they look like this. Now, I want to let you know I feel very privileged and special because I've had a Nigerian prince reach out to me <laughs> and say that if I'll just give him like $400 in gift cards, he will turn me on to millions upon millions of dollars. Uh, I got to tell you what happened to me just two days ago. Um, and so I'm sitting there and I'm studying and I'm working and all of a sudden I get this instant message from Kirby Huffman. And Kirby goes, hey, did you watch the Fox News thing where the government's like handing out $100,000 if you just apply? And I was like, I don't think this is Kirby. <laughs> and, and so I, I said, Kirby, you know this is Bill Tracy, right? And he goes, I know it's Bill Tracy. Are you interested? Question, question, question mark, question mark. And I go... You are not Kirby. So like this morning, I saw Kirby and I go, did you instant message me this week? And he goes, what? <laughs> and I said to him, I think there's a catfish in your, going on with you. Or how about this? I like this one, troll. Okay. It's a dwarf or a giant in Scandinavian folklore that lives in like caves and hills. Or we have the troll dolls. But in reality, a troll today is a person who sows discord or arguments or fights on the internet. And then we come to the rock. Now, if you're of an older persuasion, when I say the rock, you're going to think about Alcatraz. It opened in 1934 uh, and it closed in uh, uh, 1963. And it housed some of the most notorious prisoners ever, like Al Capone and other people like that. But the rock has changed. And I want you to know for a younger generation, it's this. But the rock is cooking. 
And that is The Rock. It's Dwayne Johnson. Now, the preaching team wanted me to do that up here, and I said, there's no way. I cannot do that, all right? But I'm going to say, so The Rock has changed, but now we got to understand. We're in church, and so now what we got to understand is The Rock. What is The Rock? And usually when we talk about The Rock, we're referring to, we're referring to Jesus Christ, for instance, in Matthew chapter 16, it says, Upon this rock I will build my church. We go to Luke chapter 6, and it talks about the rock. It talks about the man who dug deep, and on, he built his house on the firm foundation of the rock. But I got a secret to tell you. And here's the secret I want to tell you is, there's a rock in the Old Testament. There's a rock in the Old Testament, and this rock plays a prominent role in the life of Israel but here's the thing, it is hidden. And we don't understand the significance of the rock until we get all the way to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, what we find about, about this rock that's in the Old Testament, that it's Jesus Christ. Last week, David started us off on a series, Hidden in Plain Sight, did an excellent job with this. He said, what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're going to look at concepts and we're going to look at words and we're going to look at all sorts of different things in the Old Testament. And we're going to look at those things and, and explore how in the Old Testament they may have been hidden, but we now understand that they're about Jesus Christ. In, in reality, what we're trying to figure out and what we're trying to study is that Jesus has been here all along. He's been in the Old Testament with us. So we're going to continue on with that story. So what I want to do is this, is I want to tell you about the rock of the desert. The rock of the desert. Our search for the ministry and of Jesus starts all the way back with the people of Israel as Moses led them out of slavery from Egypt. The people of Israel have been in slavery for 400 years and whatever national identity they had, whatever national identity they had as the people of God was long washed away in the horrors of and the cruelty of slavery. And after following the ten plagues, the one culminating with the death of the firstborn, they were released out into the harshness of the desert. Can you imagine just for a second what it would be like? It would be like to be in the desert that all for four over 400 years, you've just known the reality of Egypt, and all of a sudden you're released into the desert. Now, let me explain it this way. For 400 years, even though they were slaves, their food was provided for, they had water, clothing, and they knew what they were going to do every day, even though it was slavery. And all of a sudden, they were released out into the desert, and everything that they had in Egypt was taken away. And so it means like this, as the people of Israel were led into the desert, here's what it means. Whatever direction they were going to go in the desert, it had to be because of God's hand. And whatever food that they were going to eat had to come from God. And whatever water they were going to drink had to come from God. And whatever clothing or sandals or shoes they had had to come from God. And so what we learn from this Exodus story and God's deliverance there, we learn about the incredible providence of God. Think about this for just a second. They had a cloud. And the cloud was this. 
For 400 years, if somebody you were to ask a Jew, listen, where is God in the midst of your slavery? They would go, I have no idea where God is. And all of a sudden, here's what they do is this. In the, in, in the wanderings, what they would be able to do is they would go, where is God? And they would go, he's right there. He is right there. And all of a sudden, he gave them food. He gave them manna. And I found this verse that is so cool. Uh, Psalm chapter 78, verses 23 through 25. Listen to what it says about manna. Yet he gave a command to the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down manna for the people to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. Now watch this. Men ate the bread of angels. He sent them all the food that they could eat. Isn't that interesting? The manna from heaven. The food of angels. And all of a sudden they could then like manna and God said, they complained and God sent them quails. He sent them meat. And I like this verse in Psalm 105, 40. It's very simple. It says this. They ask and he brought them quail. I love that. Or how about this? You go to Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 4. In Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 4, here's what it says about how God provided then. It says this, is that their clothes did not wear out, and listen to this one, and I think a lot of us would really like this, and their feet did not swell. How many would you like? Look, can we get an amen to that? I mean, all right. I've had six foot surgeries. I would really like that, all right? And that's God's providence. And then finally we come to the rock. God provided water for them to drink. And he did it in Exodus chapter 17 and then in Numbers chapter uh, 20. Now what's interesting about this is that he gave them water from the very beginning in the Exodus chapter 17. And then at the very end he does it again. And the first time Moses is told to strike the rock, and he does, and water comes from it. The second time Moses disobeys God, he's supposed to speak to the rock, and then he does it. He strikes the rock, but here's the point. Water still came out. It's still provided for Israel. So what do we take away from this as we just look at the Old Testament? We take away this. We take away the point is, is God's presence. God was present with the people. And not only was he present with the people, he was also, he made provisions for them. He provided for their most basic need. God took care of his people. And you might be thinking, well, Bill, I thought this was about the New Testament and the hidden in plain sight. And it is about that. But let me just tell you this. If you look at the Exodus story, you're not going to find a direct reference to the Christ. But what was happening in the Old Testament, we see as we go, was hidden. And now is going to be made revealed, revealed in the New Testament. And so it's not till the New Testament that we understand the significance of the Exodus event and what's going on there. I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Turn to your Bibles, phones, whatever. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to read verses. We're going to study, in a sense, 1 through 12. But I'm only going to read the first six verses. And I want you to follow along. In particular, I want you to look at verse 4. And then we're going to look at 6 and 11. Here's, here's what we do is this. Let's read it together. For I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, 
that our forefathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate of the same spiritual food and they drank of the the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock. Now notice what it says there. That spiritual rock that accompanied them, that rock was Christ. Two phrases I want you to hold on to is this. The first one is the rock that accompanied them. And then the idea is the rock was Jesus. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. And their bodies were scattered over the desert. Verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our heart on evil things as they did. Now go all the way down to verse 11 because he's reiterating this point. Verse 11 says, these things happened to them as examples as were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages is to come. And so what I want to do is this, is I want to redefine the Exodus story according to what was hidden in the old but now has been revealed in the new. I want to redefine it and I want to do it in particularly a couple ways. The first one is this, have you noticed the shift in the story? There's this huge monumental shift in this story. In the Old Testament is this wonderful, wonderful testimony to the providence and presence of God. I mean, you look at that and you go, God is all over the place. I mean, it's this beautiful, wonderful story. And then all of a sudden, here's what Paul does. He makes this shift. He makes the shift. And in the New Testament, he doesn't talk about He talks about it, but not in the same terms as the old. In the New Testament, here's what he says. I'm writing these things as a stern warning to you. I am warning you, Corinthian church, our brothers there. I'm warning you about this. And what I'm going to do, I'm warning you. And what I want you to understand is this. I'm writing these things so that you will not crave. And that word crave there or want in the NIV, it means this. It means this, a focused passion. Paul writes this and makes this shift and he says this, I'm writing these things so that you will not have a focused passion on evil things. Not only is there a shift in the narrative, but this redefining the rock says this, the rock was Jesus. Hidden in the old, revealed in the new. The rock was Jesus Christ. But I want you to look at that phrase there. The phrase that says, the rock that accompanied them. And i got to give you a little background, but this background will help us in this really beautiful way to understand the power of this. There was this rabbinical tradition. There was this tradition by the Jews that said this. The rock at Horeb, where they got water from the first time, literally followed them around all over the desert, giving them water wherever they went. That's why it says the rock that accompanied them. It was this incorrect tradition that Paul is leaning into. He's leaning into this incorrect tradition, Jewish tradition, to make a point. Now, here's what I believe. I don't believe a rock followed them around and gave them water wherever they went. 
And the reason I don't is, is because just the definition of rock. When, when Paul writes rock here, he's not talking about a little rock like a cup that they just keep drink, drinking from. He's talking about this massive, huge rock. And I don't see the massive, huge rock following them around, giving them water. So what's Paul's point here that the rock accompanied them? I think the point Paul is trying to make here is this. He's taking this this Jewish tradition, incorrect as it is, and here's what he's saying. Whenever and wherever you got water, Jesus was there. Isn't that cool? Let me say it one more time. Wherever and whenever you got water, Jesus was there. I think that is so powerful. What the people of Israel did not know that we now know because it's been revealed to us is that in reality the rock was Jesus Christ. It was hidden in plain sight. There's a beauty that comes of Christ being the rock. Rock and water are going to play this powerful metaphor in scripture and it's going to illustrate the solid nature of the that characterizes the church and also those who put their trust in Jesus it's what I referred to earlier in Matthew chapter 16 where it says upon this rock upon the rock of the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord nothing in this whole wide world will overpower the church And i got to be honest with you, sometimes I get worried and I get concerned about some of our prayers about this world. I like what Gary said, we need to be praying for peace in our world. It's a horrible time in that respect. But you need to understand and we need to understand as a people of God, there is no force out there. There is no force in this world that will ever, ever overpower the Lord Jesus Christ's church. Amen to that? There is not a power that will overpower the church. The other thing about redefining in the beauty of the rock is this. There is just something about the nature of the water that comes from the rock of Jesus Christ. We find it in John chapter 4. We find it in John chapter 7. And what it is is this, is that any time that we drink of and we participate in the water of Jesus, that it does something powerful within our lives. This water is one that we will never, ever thirst again. And not only will we never thirst again, but there's something powerful about it that it comes up and it comes up and it comes out of our lives. And there's a power to that. Not only is there a power and life-giving nature to Christ, but I want to go back to this phrase where it says the rock accompanying them. There is this aspect to it, and that is presence. There is this aspect to presence. The Jews, the Israelites, had no clue that Jesus was there with them in the desert, but not true for us. The fact that Jesus is ever constant presence holds true for us just like it did the Israelites. And I want to say this. There may be circumstances in your life right now where you're going like something like this. I don't know where 
God is. I don't know where Jesus is. And just like the Jews who didn't know that Jesus was with them there, it didn't mean that Jesus wasn't there. And I want to let you know, whatever circumstances in your life right now that may lead you to think, may lead you to believe that Christ is not there, here's what I want to tell you. You may be feeling that, but it's not true. Christ is here. And that's why he'll say, you know, we go to the Great Commission to talk about baptism, but I think one of the beautiful promises about the, the Great Commission is this, is the last statement. And lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the what? Into the age. It's his presence. And I think that's the beauty of the rock. And there's so many more implications of Jesus being the rock but I don't want to go too far from the text. The text demands that we look at it the way Paul intended it to. And Paul intended this text to be a warning to us. Notice the two verses, 6 and 11. He says, I'm writing these things to make sure you don't crave after evil things. Now here's what's going on with the Corinth church. It starts all the way back in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and is flooding into chapter 10. And what's going on here is some of the Christians believe, or because they have the status of God within God, that it makes them impenetrable to any type of falling away, any type of falter. And Paul is writing to them, and he's saying to them, listen, I want to let you know something. Yes, you have salvation in Jesus Christ, but there's a warning here. He says, I've written these things as examples. And you know what that word example is? It's where we get the word pattern. Tupos in the Greek. It's the pattern. I'm writing these things so you'll understand the pattern. And the pattern is this. Don't crave evil things. I like one author put it this way. High privilege does not ensure final blessings. Let me repeat that one more time. High privilege does not ensure final blessings. And, and so we got to go back and so, so what, Paul, what are you trying to say to us in this passage? And, and the first thing Paul is trying to tell us is this. There's these warnings that are coming because of the rock. There's this warning that's coming. And the first warning is this. Don't let sin disqualify you from receiving the blessing of drinking from the Lord, from the rock. Don't let sin disqualify you from drinking of the water that comes from the rock. And what Paul's going to do is he's going to go into a very, very specific message. And he's going to list four warnings. He says this, number one, do not be an idolater. It's easier said that idolater. <laughs> my mind was going faster than my mouth, all right? We should not, number two is we should not commit sexual immorality. Number three is this, we should not test the Lord. And the final one it says is this, and do not grumble. So Paul, what do you mean by these words? Idolatry. 
Idolatry is the idea and the concept of putting anything in the place of God who deserves the right to be number one. Sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is joining ourselves in any unlawful sexual way to anything. It would include fornication. It would include adultery. It would include homosexuality. It would include pornography. It would list all of those things. That's sexual immorality. And Paul's saying, don't join yourself in an unlawful sexual way. Number three is this, testing. When Paul talks about testing, here's what he's saying. It means, it's the spirit and the attitude that looks something like this. It goes something like this. The freedom that we have in Jesus, rather than serve him better, we look at God and we say something like this. You should be doing more. You need to produce more, God. It's the idea of questioning the goodness of God. And finally, is grumbling. It literally means to murmur, to mutter. Now, the word literally means this. It means this. It's this low, I mean, it's intelligible words, but it's this idea of this low grumbling, right? Have you ever heard anybody grumble real loud? We usually don't do that. You know what we usually normally do? It's this low stuff. It's this, it's this, you know, you know, I can't believe the church is doing this, and I can't believe the elder, and I can't believe this. It's that stuff. You know what grumbling is? And I love this definition. It's smoldering discontent. It's this fire in us that just everything that comes out of it is just this complaining. And Paul is writing to them and he's saying to them, listen, I, am, I want you to go all the way back to the Old Testament. I want you to look at the Exodus journey. I want you to go back to everything I've done for you. I want you to go back to the rock. And I'm doing this to serve as a warning. And so the question is this. Why these sins? Why these particular sins? And, and a couple things I think are going on here. Number one is this. It's the sins that Israel struggled with. But I think there's a larger picture here. I think there's a larger picture. And I think if you look at these sins and you, and you contrast them with the beautiful and providential uh, help of God, here's what I think these sins are saying. All of these sins in one way or another are saying this, God, you're just not good enough to take care of me. God, it's just not enough. You're just not doing enough, God, to take care of all my needs. And I think that's going on. I mean, think about a couple of examples here. One is this. If I put my job, idolatry, above my commitment of service to the Lord, what am I saying to God? God, you're not gracious enough. God, you're not caring enough to give me enough to take care of me. I must rely upon my job. Or how about this one? Grumbling. If I find myself in the state of constantly grumbling or complaining about any area of the areas of my life, here's what I'm saying to God. God, I'm just not content enough with who you are and what you're doing in my life. So here's the plea. If you feel like putting something 
in front of God, here's what I want to tell you today is this. I want you to look to the rock and drink from Jesus. And if you're at a moment, I'm just telling you, if you're at a moment where you're actually contemplating giving yourself unlawfully in a sexual way to anything or anybody, here's what I want to tell you today is this. It's time to look to the rock and drink from Jesus. And if you're wondering about the goodness of God, here's what I want to tell you today is this. I want to tell you to look to the rock and drink from Jesus. And if you find yourself in this constant state of grumbling, this constant state of complaining, here's what I want to tell you to do today is this. I want to tell you to look to the rock and drink from Jesus. But here's the second thing I think the rock does. It allows us to have this humble examination of our standing in Jesus. Now, I want to say this very, I want you to listen very carefully here is this. There is an abundance of evidence, abundance of evidence about the security of the believer. I want to let you know that if you have been baptized into Jesus, you've called on his name, your sins have been forgiven, and you have the Holy Spirit, you are saved. And I don't want you to doubt that for in a moment. I don't want you to doubt your salvation for a moment. But not doubting our salvation doesn't necessarily mean that we don't have to have a careful examination of our standing in Jesus. Listen. The Jews felt secure in the providential care of God in the wandering of the wilderness. The Corinth Christians felt secure that they trusted the rock and were tasting the water of Jesus. Paul's warning is this. If you have a secure feeling, don't let it lead you to arrogance, but have a sober, sober judgment about yourself. That's why he will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, so anyone who thinks that they are standing strong should be careful that they do not fall. It's the same admonition that we find in Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 18 where it says, Pride is the first step towards destruction. Proud thoughts will lead you to defeat. And so today, let the rock serve as this. Let it serve as this point and moment in your life where you humbly examine yourself and your standing in Jesus Christ. <sighs> Hadn't this been a cool text? This is a cool, this is a wonderful text. But I want to leave us in the invitation with this call. <laughs> this is like one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's Psalm 61, verse 2. And it says this, Lead me to the mighty rock high above me. Uh, the version of the NIV says this, Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And so the invitation comes in two forms. The first form is this. If you're not a Christian... You are not on solid foundation. You are not on a solid rock. And today, more than any day, here's what you need to do. You need to come up here and make the good confession and be immersed 
for the forgiveness of your sins, calling on his name. But if you've been in Christ for a while and you haven't been relying upon the rock with the beautiful water pouring out of it, the call for the invitation is for us is this, is to, is to allow us to, to look to the rock, to drink from the water and have Christ lead us to a rock that's greater than ourselves. And I'm going to let you know something. As a church, here's what we're here to do. We're here to help each other in that endeavor. If we could help you in any way, come as we stand and as we sing.